Yo, I'm Damien Roos, and today, which road bike? Should you ditch Strava for training peaks, and should you ditch active recovery in Zone 1? You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your Cycling Questions Answered. Straight into it with question one, does zone one power do anything? Does anyone here ever focus on zone one power? I've been advised that even for active recovery, I should be focusing on low to mid range zone two power. Generally, I can only handle three weeks of hard training and then a week of easy spinning for recovery. And that recovery used to be zone one, but now I ask around and more and more people are using zone two for their easy weeks. So the question is, is, does Zone 1 Power provide any benefits at all, and do you ever specifically and deliberately spin at this level of power? So first up, some clarification. Zone 1 in Andy Coggins Power Levels, which are your energy systems split into different levels so you know what range and how hard to go, what intensity to train different energy systems. Zone 1 is under 56% of your functional threshold power or 69% of your threshold heart rate. If you don't know what any of this means, then you need to go and check out some information on power meter training or at the very least heart rate training. If you do know what they are, then you will know what zone one is. It's the easy peasy spin the leg zone. It's the zone where you can talk freely and there is no problem riding in the zone for a long, 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 long time. The kicker is that it doesn't actually do anything. There is no benefit, no adaption, no change in something physical in your system to make you a better rider. So why the hell would you even use it? And that's the essence of this question. And I'll tell you what, I still prescribe a lot of Zone 1 for my athletes. Zone 1 is active recovery. It is getting on the bike and not having an adaption or stressing the system. It is getting away from the intensity, but still sticking to the bike. So you can get out there, spin the legs over, and feel fresh for the next time that you need to get on the bike. A lot of it, though, is still keeping some TSS or some stress on your system so that you are still progressively building more and more over the weeks of a season. So this gets to my second point, and that is, why would you use Zone 2 as recovery? Well, when you get to such a high level in your CTL that you need to maintain that level and continue to grow that level, you need to bring everything up. And that includes the active recovery from Zone 1. You need to bring that up to Zone 2. The good news is by the time you get to 110, 120, 130 CTL, a 100 TSS recovery ride in Zone 2 is nothing compared to the average of over 200 TSS for all the other rides that you're doing during the week. So it means that you are still getting a recovery to your system. You're not stressing anything but the aerobic system, which you've built up and it can handle it by the time you get to that point in your season. So what I do is prescribe this when a rider gets to around 110 CTL, I'll add in the standard two hours of zone two and that will be their recovery. That's going to be as easy as 
as it's going to get for the entire week. And it isn't that difficult. It isn't that hard to do when you get to that point. But earlier on in the season, you need that time to step away from the training so you can recover and you can build to that point. Doing it all year round, I don't see any need to do it all year round. When you start out in the season, you'll need it. But as you continue to add more fitness and you want to continue to add more fitness and not get to a plateau where you only have limited hours to train, where you need to raise all the intensity so you can keep building, that is when you start adding zone two as active recovery. Question two, I'm new to road biking and am actively exploring new bikes. I've tested the whole Cervelo lineup and found that the ride and price for me makes the most sense with an R3. So I'm asking you all to help me find a few similar bikes to compare the heck out of before I pull the trigger. The type of riding I do is going to be fairly hilly. I live in Berkeley, California, and I'll be riding with a group of seasoned riders who I look forward to pushing me on pace. Most rides are in the 40 miles mile range. What other models should I check out in the three and a half thousand price range that are similar? Thanks. Okay, so you're talking about the Cervelo R3 with Ultegra, Shimano Ultegra here. But the real question to me is, how much are you willing to pay for a less common brand? Because that's the choice that you're looking at here. And by going with Cervelo, you're talking about a brand that is less common and more expensive on average. All the bikes at this price point will be similar. In this case, you basically want a carbon climbing bike or anything that's just not an aero bike with Ultegra or equivalent in other brands. If you look at a bike brand that is positioned at the top of the market, it's going to cost you more for lower spec parts. Example, the BMC Grand Fondo GF02 105 is around the same price, but it only comes with 105 Shimano, a lower group set. And while most brands will say Ultegra in their models around this price point, they're usually meaning a mix of Ultegra and 105 or similar, and then generic or cheaper spec parts like stems and saddles. So it balances out at around the same price. If you want to go for a bike that has full Ultegra, you have to go for a more common or generally cheaper brand. And these are brands like Canyon and Giant, which everyone has caught on to because you and everyone else can get a Giant with a full Ultegra group set for around the three and a half thousand USD mark. And that's one of the reasons that they're so popular. A Giant is a very functional bike that has everything you need, plus they give you higher spec parts. Everything else in this price range is a compromise because you want to ride a bike that's slightly less common and maybe even a bit sexier. I will say that there are some bikes that do look a bit sexier on average you're going to find that they have lower spec gear. So this is why I always recommend Giant as someone's first bike. It gives you everything you need and more. It's just that a billion other people are riding them. But you don't care about that. You just want something that's reliable, it's going to work, and then you can go to another bike from that point. If you do want to have a comparison to some more bikes just for the hell of it, and you want to go into some bike shops and test some out, why not go for the Cannondale Super 6 Evo Carbon, the Bianchi Intenso Ultegra, Trek Amoda SL6, or the Specialized Tarmac Comp? 
it's obvious advice that you will want to go and write all of these to see how they fit you. The little nuances of each of the material layups plus the sizing makes a really big difference when you're on the bike a long time. And I want to say that, okay, I've suggested Giant. I've ridden, bought, I've had Giants in my life, a lot of them. What I have done, though, I have fallen in love with a bike that was a lower spec bike, but it was sexy as hell. I walked into the bike shop and I was done. My tax check went to it the next day. I fell totally in love with it. It had 105, which was a bit of a compromise, but I loved it. I loved looking at this bike. I loved riding it. So I understand there's that level of passion when it comes to buying these products, which I'm giving you the best functional answer, but there is that other side of it. And speaking of that other side of it, maybe there's a specific frame that you want. So you're willing to sacrifice parts now, and then you want to upgrade parts later on. That's common advice. And people say this a lot in the bike shop. Maybe you'll get this or your friends will say this, but I want to be a bit contradictory when it comes to this advice and say upgrading is bullshit. There is no need to upgrade stuff. You can get rid of a bike and buy a whole new bike. Sometimes by the time you've slowly upgraded things, then everything is out of whack and you have to start all over again. You have to start upgrading more and more and more. It doesn't work for me. I don't like upgrading bits and pieces here and there. I would just buy something that works and be done with it. If you want something that is more functional or something a little more specific when it comes to parts, like I just bought a wheel set because I wanted to get rid of Mavic's weird nipples and get some common nipples, just some standard nipples on my wheels, then that's what you can do. But outside of that, there is really no need to upgrade. So I am rambling now, but my main point here is don't be sucked into a better brand unless you go in with your eyes open and understand that you're not really always paying for more bike. Maybe it's just the label on the down tube. Question three, I'm starting training for an event coming up in 12 weeks time. It's an endurance ride of 235 kilometers and 4,000 meters of climbing. While not a race, I have a target time I'd like to hit and I need to prepare myself for the climbing. I'm not new to hills and most of the technical aspects. I just want training tips. My approach would be to get out and ride some hills, but most of my riding is done commuting in a very flat city. I've been having a go at riding a bigger gear with a lower cadence, approximately 80 opposed to my usual 90-95 on the hypothesis that this will work my slow twitch muscles that I will be using on longer climbs. Am I wasting my time by doing this? What can I do on my commutes that will help me climb better? There definitely is some merit to riding in a harder gear, even if it's on the flats. But there is more to it than just dropping your cadence by 10 and 15, calling it a day and going out and riding. Low cadence workouts need to be tailored to your specific power output. I will get into this, but let's just run through a bit of why we would do this. So low cadence workouts are designed for fast twitch hypertrophy to create the optimal ratio of fast twitch and slow twitch fibers. The optimal ratio actually works out to be 
1.3 to 1 for strength endurance athletes. This is stated in Newman's 2000 paper. The difficulty in prescribing a workout that helps with hypertrophy of fast twitch fibers is that the gains should not come at the cost of the aerobic capacity of the fibers. So we want to train something that still works on the hypertrophy of fast twitch, but we don't want to sacrifice the aerobic capacity of these fibers. So we need a stimulus in training that is sufficiently easy that it can be supported aerobically, but sufficiently hard that it results in a significant fast twitch recruitment. And uh, this can be done. It doesn't require high movement either, so that's really good news. It does require high levels of torque though, and that's why traditionally this type of low cadence riding is done on a hill to generate that torque. You can still get the same effect though if you do the math and work out where your optimum level of recruitment of fast twitch fibers is. And recruitment itself begins at approximately 40% of maximal voluntary muscle contraction. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but I thought I would say the name in its entirety so you can look it up. And the recruitment peaks at approximately 80 to 85% of MVC. If we want to design a workout that significantly recruits these fast twitch fibers, we want torque numbers of between 40 and 80% of peak torque. I'll give you a workout that's targeting the lower end of this peak torque, so that's around 40%. If we go through an example of numbers, and this is an example that I've done for an athlete in the past, so these numbers will mean nothing to you, but it'll give you an idea. If you have a max power of 1303 watts at 105 RPM, so you're generating that max power at that RPM, then your max torque is 118 newton meters at 105 RPM. 40% of that max torque is 47 newton meters at 45 to 50 RPM. And I like to start off riders at around 85% of FTP. So you need to know those three numbers to do this workout. You will want to do these workouts on your commute starting at two days per week, starting with three times 10 minutes of the workout per day. And then each week, just add 10%, just build and build and build. So that's kind of like a bottom-up way of approaching the commutes with something that's going to be useful to help you climb better. The top-down approach is to work out at the same intensity that you'll be climbing these hills in, which is just below FTP or threshold. You won't be wanting to do these climbs at threshold because 4,000 meters of climbing, 235 kilometers, that's 7, 8, 9, 10 hours, whatever you're going to ride it in you have to do it below threshold in order to survive all of the climbing. So you need to go out and do a lot of sweet spot and tempo. And the same thing again, start at the place before you drop off and then just keep adding more and more and more. The final thing I will say regarding training is outside of the commute on the weekend, at least one day a week, you want to be doing a super long ride eventually building up to the same kilojoules that you'll be using on event day. But this will give you a bit of an understanding and hopefully you can work out exactly where your cadence should be and where your intensity or your watts should be so that you can get the maximum recruitment of the all-important fast twitch fibers.
Question four, how much maintenance does your bike bikes need? Ugh, I have two bikes that I ride and race hard, approximately 350 miles a week between the two, and I feel like I'm constantly needing to bring them into the shop for something or another. New chain, cables, cassette, wheel truing, tubulars, reglued, you name it. Somewhat of a rant, but also curious, how much attention do your bikes need? Well, right now, me, I only own one bike, so it's easy to maintain. There isn't the temptation to ride one, get it dirty, leave it, ride the other get it dirty and then have to start all over again cleaning two bikes and going through them so my recommendation here starts with cleaning cleaning to me is the most important part of maintenance it gives you the chance to reset everything because once you have a clean bike then you can check everything out to see where it's at and try and get a jump on things before they need fixing. So I will even go through my frame and have a check for cracks and things once it's clean. I will tell you though a dirty little secret, well a clean little secret, I don't actually clean my own bike. I've given that up. Some people like it. I absolutely hate it. So I have outsourced it to the bike shop and they'll do it for me which does also help with parts because while they're trying to make a buck off me, fair enough, they tell me what needs replacing when it needs replacing But what I take on board for myself is I usually just try and be preemptive when it comes to looking for the parts that need replacing and I only focus on the drive chain generally. I'll keep an eye out for a stretched chain or for sharp teeth on my crank set or cassette or whatever and generally for the last couple of years I've probably gone through one cassette and one chain a year so that shows how much I'm riding but I just look out for the indicators and then change outside of that maybe cables once a year if they're getting a bit crusty or whatever when it comes to just general parts beyond the drive chain I wait till something breaks or it doesn't work properly or whatever and then I'll replace it and then that's about it. I have been through those periods with four, five, six bikes and you always feel like you're in the bike shop doing something and it's always costing you a fortune. So I feel your pain. But if you just kept your bikes both clean, you'd be on top of what they need and it wouldn't be such a surprise or a pain in the ass to go in and change them all the time. But you you could go down to one bike, but then What do you do when the bike's in the shop? Question five, should I pay for training peaks? Is it worth it? I currently pay for Strava Premium, but the lack of features they have with power analysis really irks me. If you're paying for training peaks, why are you and what features are you using? To set the context, I'm a B-grade Cat 2 racer and I feel like I want to be at this level for life as A-grade or Cat 1 requires time I simply do not have. The question here It's not really about training peaks necessarily. It's more about training software in general. I'll get to training peaks specifics in a moment. But first, let's look at training software and your needs or the needs of a B-grade Cat 2 racer. This person, it sounds like they're self-coached. I use this term lightly because anyone that doesn't have a coach is self-coached. But there's a huge difference in how self-coached riders approach their cycling from super-duper laissez-faire to hyper-diligent organization freaks. So let's start with a bit of a self-assessment to get some quick questions for you to figure out what type of self-coached rider you are. Do you like to put your training sessions in writing ahead of time? 
the answer is yes, then you need software that allows you to add training sessions, maybe even the ability to divide an entire season into phases. If the answer is no, then you need software that allows you to add your ride data only. With saved rides, how detailed is the analysis you want to do on your rides or your season or whatever? If it's just a general overview of the rides in the season, then you need software that takes your data and turns it into some charts and some graphs that are pre-made and all worked out for you. So you just click around and you can have a bit of a general overview. If you want a detailed power analysis of everything, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, then you need software that has more options and the ability to customize the use of this data. I'm going to answer for the person that wrote this question. It seems that... You don't need to plan your training. You only want the ability to analyze your data in more detail than Strava has now. And there's a simple answer to this question. But first, let's take a look at Training Peaks, what it is and what it does. Training Peaks at its simplest level is a web app, and this is another name for an online software program. It is the accepted standard. Its main functions are a training calendar where you can add individual training sessions ahead of time, which is mostly done by a coach or, like I said, the uber-prepared self-coached athlete. It also has the ability to upload the data from your cycling computer and match it to that planned training session or it's simply just going to add it to the calendar. That's the basics of what it does and there is a free version and a paid version. The free version is called Basic for obvious reasons. It doesn't let you use this planning function. So it doesn't let you plan future workouts or do a detailed analysis of any data. It's pretty useless, in fact, and you would have to use the paid version, which is Training Peaks Premium, in order to get any of this stuff out to get any use from the data that you've put into it. And the Training Peaks Premium is a max of 20 US dollars a month, which drops to $9.92 US dollars a month if you pay yearly. The extras that Premium gives you are useful. It can turn your data into graphs and charts, the performance management chart. It can give you an idea of how many hours you're doing and compared to what you planned. So it can give you a nice general overview and you can dig into that to see some patterns that are occurring. And that is compared to Strava, which it does give you a performance management chart as well, but it doesn't give you that overview at the same granular level. There is that price difference between Strava Premium and Training Peaks Premium, which Strava Premium is six bucks a month or four ninety two per month if you pay yearly. It's fifty nine bucks versus one hundred twenty a year. That's a chunky sixty one bucks. So is it worth it? No, you don't get your value for money from Training Peaks versus Strava Premium. Especially if you aren't adding training programs, you get the extra charts, etc that are useful assuming you know how to use them and if you're not planning though it can be good to check where you are but the real benefit is planning so you want to know how to use them and then you get the most benefit from training peaks otherwise you can just check Strava but personally here's what I would do I would just keep Strava just because it's Strava and I download your rides to Golden Cheetah 
it's going to give you a lot more power, a lot, a lot, a lot more power than Strava and TrainPeaks combined, and it's free. Other than this, if you want to plan your training, then I would just set up a free Google spreadsheet with your training on it. There's no need to get too tech and fancy when it comes to this. Another free option. So they're both free. And then download your data to Golden Cheetah and analyze your data there because it has everything that you're going to need. Here's my explanation, though, of why... I and my coaching company use Training Peaks though. As a coaching business, it is the best software out there. It not only allows me to have shared calendars and library functions, and it syncs to my preferred training analysis software, which is WKO4. Training Peaks is not perfect, but it is the accepted standard that I am using. So a bonus question. PIN 133 upside down. I'm not sure if you're aware that when you have number 13 in cycling, it is the one number that you can pin upside down because it is, of course, unlucky number 13. But taking it to 133, should you pin it upside down? No. When was 133 an unlucky number? It's not Friday the 133rd. So, no. No.